Okay, so we are in a series, a house that got built. Excuse me. And um, when you think of God, do you think of him as this kind of God? Just waiting? Or do you think of him as a kind God? How do you think of him? You know, I've passed 5,000 coffees and beers with people now in my almost nine years. And uh, I've had lots and lots and lots and lots of conversations with people. You know what's intriguing to me? I know some of you have heard this. Out of all of those people, only one was not raised in a Christian home. Only one. The rest walked away. just like I did. They walked away from the faith, wanted nothing to do with it. You know why? You know what the overwhelming, most common reason is? Is because they have a portrayal of God like this. Just waiting for you to mess up. I have yet to find a person that walked away that thought of God as kind, loving, gracious. It's 5,000 people. And I have a track record before I came to this church doing the same. What happened? That's the way I was raised. What happened? What did the church do to communicate God this way? I wonder how he feels about this. Let me think about you. If your reputation, and we mention your name, and everybody at the church says, oh, yeah, that's a person we don't like. How would you feel? And yet that's what we've managed to do, is to communicate to the world in our country that that's who God is. Nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing. Nothing could be further from the truth. I moved up here thinking I was going to be going into bars and doing evangelism, and I soon realized that I'm not doing evangelizing, I'm doing recovery <laughs> Helping people rethink who God is. Because, you know, God is, we're going to learn today, he's very kind. He's very kind. Remember how we finished a year ago the study of Leviticus? For those of you that are visitors, don't fall out of your chair. Yes, we studied Leviticus. You think of Leviticus, you think of usually, you think of a lot of commands. But what we discovered in Leviticus is that it's actually a love story. It's a, it captures God's heart, not in the commands, but for the reason for them. It captures his heart for what he desires us as his people to be. And the New Testament lives that out. So I gave you the analogy that Leviticus is a blueprint. It's just a blueprint. And it takes a builder to turn that blueprint into a building. And that's what Ephesians is all about. The house that God built. Okay? When the Spirit came at Pentecost, the builder showed up and began building this house. And that's us. So Ephesians is giving us all of the characteristics of this house. So two Sundays ago, we looked, chapter 1, the beginning. It's a house that is blessed, filled with blessing. Then last Sunday, it's a house of thanksgiving. It's a house where one of the defining characteristics of this house, and by the way, I'm talking about us, should be a house of thanksgiving. Today, it's a house of life. 
It's a house of the living, not the dead. This is where people can come, should be able to come and find life, find it abundantly, find it overflowing, rich with life. And that's the third characteristic is as a house of life. So we're going to look at uh, the first 10 verses of chapter 2. We're going to go through them. You'll see it on the screen one at a time. And chapter 2, this first section is laid out in a very simple process. It's the most, one of the most well-known passages to all of you here. You've heard it before, or you're going to hear it again. And maybe you might have find a few surprises in here. Okay? But it explains some things. Number one, it says we have a problem. We are dead. We are dead. You've got to get used to that. Number two, there's a solution. We've been made alive. How'd that happen? Well, that's number three, the process of how you were brought to life. And number four, the reason. Why does it even matter? Why does it even matter? I've raised this question in classroom after classroom after classroom. Why did God save you? Why did he regenerate you and make you alive? Most of the time, I get a stock answer. It goes like this, so we can glorify God. There's a problem with that. I mean, think about it. If I say to you, I'm going to have a child so that they will glorify me. That's just narcissistic. That's all that is. I don't think that's the reason that God made us. Today is the one passage I know that explains why he saved us. And it's not for that reason. You see, glory to God does occur uh, when your children, when they live out the life that you have trained them and raised them to live, then you get glory. But you didn't have them so that they would bring you glory. That's not why you have children. Okay? You have children so you can love them and bless them. Well, God's no different. He created us so he could bless us. He didn't need our glory. He had all the glory he needed. He didn't need that. He did it for a whole other reason. That's what love is all about, to love us and bless us. And we're going to see that verse. It's the only place I know of in the Bible that tells us why. And it's right here in this passage in chapter 2. So let's look in chapter 2, verse 1. It starts off with the bad news. As for you, okay, pause. Remember how we started this series this in ephesians is that the pronouns are different in ephesians i believe when he talks about you and us he's talking about you the jews i mean you the gentiles and us the jews so chapter one he gives a standard jewish rhetoric about the jews they're saying about the gentiles i'm sorry you're not like us so stay out the law was meant to invite them in because it was good and they put it up as a barrier and say stay out so this book is organized, you Gentiles, us Jews. In this passage, he's beginning this dance to bring everything together, the you and the us, so we're all in the same boat. We're all in the same situation. So, as for you Gentiles, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Okay, another pause. All these pronouns are plural. So don't be thinking about you as an individual. Think about us as a people. Okay? This is our state that we are in. It does impact you as an individual, but he's really talking about a people group, and it's going to become very clear uh, in the second part of chapter 2 next week. It's going to become very clear. So all of you Gentiles were dead in your transgressions and sins. Okay? This means when it says we're dead, it means we're living apart from Christ. What did God say to Adam? What happened in Genesis 2, 17? In the garden? Let's put that up. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. I mean, it does include physical death, okay? But physical death is not the end of the story. We live for eternity, all right? Really what he's talking about is to be separated from God. That's what it means. 
when you die, that's what he said to Adam and Eve, when you eat, you're going to die. I don't know what it's like to be in perfect relationship with God, take one bite, and that all changes like that. I don't know that. For me, the world is always like that. I can only try to imagine what it might have been like, but I can't get there. But they did, okay? Can you imagine the trauma of that broken relationship? And from then on, they are able to hide. And look in three, chapter 3, verse 17 of Genesis. This is what they did, okay? In chapter 3, they went and they, uh, they hid from God. God's looking for them in the garden. Do you have that verse? Did we get it up there? Go ahead and put it up. In the first service, I realized I'd accidentally deleted it. So God goes to find them in the garden. He goes, hey, where are you? And here's what happens. Adam said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Okay? Now think about what this verse is communicating, because this verse lays out the story of humanity from now on until Christ returns. This is the story of humanity. The very first thing is you have this very corrupted emotion. I was afraid. And from then on, the Bible repeatedly says, do not be afraid. Go ahead and put it back up there for a minute. I was afraid. Okay, that's an emotion that is not legit. That wasn't there a few minutes before. Afraid. But that leads to uh, a distorted perspective. He said, because I was naked. Prior to that, they didn't have a sense, that self-awareness to even be ashamed or to have any of that kind of feeling because they felt perfectly comfortable in each other's presence and in God's presence. So they have this whole perspective that's skewed now because of the fall. And then the most destructive thing is you have a disastrous strategy that comes out of it. So I hid. I hid. Prior to this, there was no hiding from God. None whatsoever. But now they hide. And this is all about shame. That's why I've said repeatedly over and over and over again from up here, okay, if you're stuck in sin, okay, guess what? So are we all. <laughs> Been down that road many times. Don't stay there. Come talk to me. No, no judgment, no condemnation, no shame. You may get laughter because you got yourself in a mess. But what you're going to find is let's solve the problem. Let's turn your life in a different direction so that you get away from that. Because this is the strategy that started the fall. That was a result of the fall, but it started the human race. And all of us do the same thing. And so when Paul says in Ephesians 2, 1, that we're dead in our trespasses and sins, guess what? That is true. But he goes on from there. So we're dead in our transgressions and sins in which you formerly used to live, okay, when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So this is the way we used to live. We all followed the ways of the world, if you will. And by, by the way, that word, the way you used to live, that's the word to walk. And this verb is going to become very important later on in the second half of Ephesians. Think about the walking verb. Okay, in the ancient world, the only way they had to get around was typically walking. That was their most common way to move from place to place. And what do we know about walking? It takes a long time. <laughs> okay? Paul, I estimated in all of Paul's travels, walked 14,000 miles. Okay? 14,000 miles, if you look at all of his journeys. And he walked. And so walking is something that happens, just it takes time. It takes patience. So Paul's going to use this verb all the way through the second half of Ephesians 
to describe the life in Christ. We can't be in a hurry. Okay, but guess what? It's also a great verb, a great metaphor to understand life in the world. You can't move any place fast and you're stuck in sin. You're stuck in the challenges of life, the brokenness, the loneliness, the emptiness, and everything you try, everything you try doesn't work. It doesn't really get you where, you're, where your created heart wants to go. And so it's this great verb. Well, not only that, he gives us some insight here. He said, uh, we follow the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. You know what that means? If you're apart from Christ, which is what dead means, you got two options. And you do both. You follow the ways of the world, which is controlled by Satan. Which means you're ultimately following Satan. That's what that means. You're searching after everything. You know what we call that? Hedonism. What's going to bring you just a taste of relief? A taste of joy? If I only had a little more money, if I only had a spouse that really loved me, if I only had a new car, if I only had, if I only had, if I only had, if I only had. And you know what they, you know where it gets you? No place at all. So the result is hedonism, verse 3. All of us, now he's brought us together, everybody. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. That's the state of the person who does not know Christ. Their only choice is to grab after whatever they can get. That's the closest they can come. We've talked many times, sin promises to have to, it promises fun and guess what it delivers. If it didn't, we wouldn't do it. It just doesn't last. It's always a dead end road, always, always. So what we want to make sure we avoid now in this discussion is the, all, the opposite, the alternative is not this. That's not who God is. The opposite is this. Come. That really is the opposite. And we're going to see it now in the rest of this passage. The solution, verse 4 and 5, is that we're made alive. But... But, but, I love that word. But, whenever I see that word in Greek, I just smile. But, <laughs> because of his, his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, all of a sudden we have love and mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. You see, the beginning of the motive of why God did this is love. Okay? We haven't yet discovered for what purpose, but his motive is love. Just like any good parent. If my children are in trouble, and yes, my children have been in trouble, I'll move heaven and earth to get to them. I'd spend everything I had to help them out. My grandchildren are the same. What do you need? Nancy takes that literally and is always buying gifts for our grandkids. So um, some of you grandparents understand what I mean by that. And so why wouldn't God do that? You know, it's interesting in this passage, uh, for many years I taught at CCU, Colorado Christian University, and I taught uh, 18-year-olds. 
And so when I got to the, uh, about the eighth or ninth week, we do New Testament survey where we cover every book quickly so they learn the basic story of the Bible. And um, I could say, did you know God loves you? But here's what I did. Um, it's about week eight or nine or 10, somewhere in there. Uh, CCU would give me a list of the students and then they would, from the uh, incoming surveys, they would give us a description of the, the background and the problems that these students face and they compared against the data of culture. So I had a list of the challenges. So the students knew when they walk into class on this week that uh, something was different because I'm, I'm pretty gregarious and I'm out greeting the students as they walk in. Hey, how's it going? You know, keep it up on your studies. How come you didn't get your paper and that kind of stuff, you know? And uh, all of a sudden they walk in and I'm sitting there not doing that. I'm just looking down and, and getting my notes ready and they're thinking, oh no, what's wrong? Did somebody die? Is there you know, are you quitting? What's happening? They don't know. They just know something's not right. So the, the bell rings and I start walking back and forth. I know not to look at them because what I'm about to say is too personal. And I'd say, you know, 10 weeks ago when we started the class, I didn't know any of you. But the truth is I knew a lot about you. I knew that uh, seven or eight of you have already engaged in premarital sex and moved on. And uh, you're not sure what to do with what's left over. And I know that another eight of you uh, are really tempted that way, but you're not sure you could talk to another Christian because you're going to get this. I know that a couple of you have already engaged in uh, same-sex relationships, and uh, you're struggling because you're in an environment. Remember, these are all silver spoon kids that are Christian families, okay? And you're in an environment where you're probably going to feel shame if you mention it to anybody. Another four or five of you are tempted that way. You don't know what to do with it. I know, that, uh, I know that 18 of you males in here are already addicted to pornography, and uh, you, you're afraid to tell anybody, you know. And I just got on the list, and all of a sudden I look up, and every class, half of them would have tears. And I'd say, and you know what? I didn't care. I couldn't wait to get in here and spend a semester talking about Jesus with you. I couldn't wait. If I feel that way, why wouldn't God feel that way? Am I unique? I'm apparent like he is. Why wouldn't God feel that way? But God, because of his really deep and rich love, that's his motive. This love is is made completed when it starts to blend together with his other character qualities. Just in this verse alone, we have love, mercy, and grace coming together. This is the God that we serve. He's doing this. He's not doing this. I've asked the question many times, how many of you have sinned in the last week or two, and everybody raises their hands, if you're honest. And yet, when's the last time you remember being punished? It's not the way God works. God uses your sin to shape you and use you, not to punish you. We serve a God who is rich in mercy, who has deep love. He made us. He created us. That's the story of the gospel. He loves this entire creation so much that he'll do whatever it takes to every human, short of violating your free will, to get you to turn to him, where you will find, as Hebrews says, not punishment, love, mercy, kindness, help in your time of need. It is his love that explains why he saved us. How did he do it? Verse 6. 
And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Okay. Um, Elsewhere in the Bible, Paul says that Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. Okay? He came first, so we come next. But all of a sudden here, he's giving us a whole other brand new idea that we've never seen in history. We participate in this resurrection somehow. I don't quite get it. It's the mystery we're going to hear about in Ephesians 3. All I know is we participate, and right now we are seated at the right hand of God, in the heavenly, right hand of Christ in the heavenlies. If I could take these lenses off and put on spiritual lenses, Jesus would be sitting right here, and I'd say, oh, uh, here, come on, you take over. I'm going to have a seat. Because what, did, what do we learn from the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation? Jesus said, I'm standing in your midst right now. We live in two realms. If anyone is in Christ, thanks for reading that, Rob. They're part of the new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. That's our world. We, we have, as Rob has said many times, we have hands in two worlds at the same time. And if we do it appropriately, it's like a filament. We come to life. Thank you for that metaphor. I got one hand in the world. I do that in bars. He does it in bars. Singing. Sometimes we're in the same bar. You know, and other hands in the church loving the Lord. And then we light up. And that's when the glory of the Lord shines. Because that's what we're created for. Another metaphor is we're a gateway. We're the gate for the world to get to the kingdom. How else are they going to find it? We're going to find in Ephesians 3, to God be the glory in the church. There's no billboard out there. We are the gateway to the Lord. You got to have hands in both of them in order for them to see it. And so, (coughs) excuse me, he's using a brand new, a fresh idea of this resurrection. In some way, we are participants Why did he do it? Here it is. Here's the verse. Let me read verse 6 again. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that. This is the answer to why he saved you. In order that. in, In the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus, in order that he might show to whom is he showing this most incredible of all the miracles, his love and grace? Who is he showing it to? All of creation. That's why Paul can say in the Corinthian epistles, the angels long to look. They got one shot. We get second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, on and on and on chances. Angels got one shot, and they were confirmed in their rebellion. No wonder they're going, wow, what kind of God is this? Look at him. Look at what, look at what Howard's doing down there. And God still loves him, and he's showing grace. Look again what Howard's doing. He's still showing grace. No wonder Satan is, he comes after us and, and uh, char- accuses us 24 hours a day. You see what Howard did? And Jesus is standing up there going, yeah, but he's, uh, he, I died for him. He's covered under the blood. It's fine. He's forgiven. Over and over and over again, this conversation happens all day long, 24 hours a day, and I'm protected. No wonder they sit there in awe and say, so he wants to show his in, the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his what? Kindness. His kindness. You see, we're now beginning to get a, the dual purpose of why he saved us. Number one, to bless us. And number two, to show the world his true character. This 
is not his true character. That's a fabricated character. His true character is this. Come. So what we learned in Leviticus, what we needed was the Spirit to come to give us a heart. The problem wasn't the law. The law was simple. The law was easy. There was no problem with the law. The problem was the heart. We needed a new heart. And that's what happened at Pentecost. It was this. And so it's a dual purpose of why he wants to bless you. Even the imagery of when he says that in order that in the coming ages, okay, he had talked just in chapter one about um, the age, the present, the uh, past age and the future age, the present, they come together. Think of this. This is a present tense in these ages that are descending upon us. Even now, because we live in two worlds, we already are enjoying the future. Our future began the day we turned to Christ. Okay? Eternal is only an adjective. We were given life. That's what we were given, life. It just happens to let go on for eternity, the blessing of the Lord. And so in these ages that are descending right in our midst, he wants to bless us. So now we have another motive in this this, uh, constellation of, of emotions or motives, kindness. So now we have love, mercy, grace, kindness. Boy, does that sound a lot like the fruit of the Spirit? These are the hallmarks of Christianity right here. This is it. You've heard it. This is the very core, the very center of what we should be as a church. Right here. Love, mercy, grace, kindness. How did he do it? The process, verses 8 and 9, you're all familiar with this. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Okay, it's a gift. Let me say a word about gift, because we have a little bit of distortion on this word in some of your traditions. Okay, in the ancient world, a gift is very clear. We've done a lot of research. We know what a gift was. A gift was always expected. Uh, Reciprocity was always expected. So I'm in power, and you're not. And I give you a gift. I expect you from then on to, uh, to do what I ask you to do. Uh, or I'm taking that gift away. And you lose that patronage. It's that simple. So the gift always included reciprocity. We tend to, in some churches, and even in some of the churches I've been in, a gift is free. It doesn't matter. No, it does matter. Okay? Works actually play a very important role. What he, the distinction he's making here is works do not lead to this gift. This gift leads to works. You understand that difference? So there is reciprocity expected. God says, I'm going to give you a gift, and you're going to change. Your life is going to be different. And you're going to begin to live out. Philippians 1, 6, for I'm convinced of this very thing, that he who began a good work in us will complete it. See, now you have two choices. You can walk the road or get drug kicking and screaming. Those are your choices. But you are going to get drug. So this gift does not come unattached. All right? So the gift, the works do not lead to the gift. The gift leads to the works. And this was the challenge that James is trying to get across in James chapter 2. They're both part of who we are. James chapter 2, verse 17. In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. And then in verse 24, he says in Greek, 
grammatically the exact opposite of Paul. So you see, a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. This is one of those conundrums we give to our New Testament majors because we love to watch them wrestle with it. You see, think of, think of this, this act of salvation as a two-sided coin or, or a marker in time. So faith, uh, uh, Paul argues that faith alone is what generates the gift of salvation. And James says, and that gift of salvation is what generates faith and works. They're very clear. They're talking about two sides of the same event in history. Your faith demonstrate your salvation. I'm a skeptic. For years and years and years, decades, I've led people to Christ. You know what my first thought is when they turn to Christ? We'll see. Because if it's real, you're going to be different. A year from today, I will know. Not that I'm your judge, but your life is going to be different. That's what happens when you turn to Christ. Both are intertwined in our response to God, and that's all God asks. And what is it that he asks of us? What is that work? Look at verse 10. Everybody knows 8 and 9. Very few people know verse 10, but this is actually my favorite verse. For we are now God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You see, every day, and this is a metaphor I've used for, gosh, 30 years now, every day is a treasure hunt. I don't have to fabricate good works. I just have to open my eyes and look. They've already been prepared. It's a treasure hunt. You're looking for the gold nugget buried in the sand. It could be a kind word to somebody. It could be coming alongside and helping them. It could be sitting in a bus station, or in my case, an airplane. You guys know all the stories the exotic dancers, all that stuff. You know all those stories, right? Where I'm sitting next to somebody and I have a chance to bring kindness into their life and goodness and help them sort out why life is such a struggle. None of this. I want them to come closer. I want them to enjoy it. How many times, thousands of times have I said, you know, uh, I can tell from your response that, that you don't like Christians very much. What happened? What happened? to give you that. This is the house that God is building. A house of life. So when people look at us, do they find this life-giving? Or do they find this? Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your kindness. And thank you for giving us a way to love you. A way that we're created for and it's fun and it's enjoyable. It's really not work. It's more recreation. Thank you for that. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.